Good morning, good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to this webinar, uh, monthly webinar held by xapa.org. Um, advise investment advocate. Uh, today, we will uh, explore the following topic, leadership lessons of the Great Recession, option for economic daughters. It's a webinar which is part of a series which started back in January, exploring multiple aspects of uh, how companies can address the transformations coming with uh, the environmental, digital, and social challenges, which of course have been completely disrupted or accelerated through uh, COVID-19. I would start with uh, practicalities, um, and these are our online meeting instructions. Uh, feel free to name yourself so people know who you are. Uh, you are automatically muted. Uh, that's a way to ensure high quality of the uh, the discussion that we can have and to interact with us you need to use the chat function you can send questions directly to the moderator or to the whole group if you want um, the participant list is accessible notably through LinkedIn it's not the full list but that gives you a good idea of those who participate um, there is no need to use uh, to turn on the camera uh, it's a way to maximize the bandwidth and minimize the, uh, the energy uh, footprint of uh, this uh, webinar and last a poll will be activated um, for the last 10 minutes and uh, we'll be delighted to get your uh, feedback it's just three questions but that's always useful um, and our uh, 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 panelists will be presented slightly later on I will start with a brief introduction about what we're doing at SAPA. That's a way for all of you to understand better our perspective and how we're coming to this uh, uh, very important uh, discussion um, today. Uh, and uh, I'm hopeful that that will give you a, a, a good flavor of how we operate. SAPA, uh, some people know, some don't, uh, at the end of the day, uh, that's coming from a, a million word, uh, and that means discernment, wisdom. And at the end of the day, we've been uh, established as a global initiative, ensuring that uh, uh, corporations and investors can accelerate their contribution to um, the following topic, climate, human rights, and inclusive growth, and circularity. And that's we, we do that uh, with solutions helping those companies and investors to generate more resilient and inclusive growth. We do this through three activities. Uh, many of you in this community know us having worked with us through our advisory services. And that's actually, uh, uh, we frame uh, typically some uh, strategic uh, priorities and we help companies to build alignment on what an inclusive growth program can imply and mean for them. Most interestingly, because we've been established today, that's because we think that a lot of the solutions um, that are available to date are not sufficient. So we explore closely um, how digital solutions and how innovative financing solutions can enable corporations and investors as much as their ecosystems of broader stakeholders to accelerate their transformation models and their contribution to climate, circularity, human rights, inclusive growth agenda. Um, we are set up as a dot organization. We're a purpose-driven organization and that's the third pillar of our activities. We don't only advise and invest, but we also advocate and we share uh, through our blog, uh, blog articles, briefing papers, uh, regular webinars like this one uh, in an open source manner, uh, several content bringing insight to our community. 
as a way to enable people to uh, learn, educate, and implement solutions. We're a part with three circles. We have a team. Uh, we're headquartered in Paris, France. We have a team. We operate with uh, a circle of uh, 150 plus partners uh, based across the world uh, with active programs in, um, in the US, for example, or in Southeast Asia. Um, and we have strategic partners, um, uh, organizations which bring complementary um, expertise that we don't have in-house. Typically, when we design uh, impact investing solutions, we work with global agencies providing legal and accountancy services. Uh, we, when we design digital solutions, we work with uh, people bringing some data science expertise, which we don't have in-house as a way to manage the related complexity. Um, these are... Uh, uh, sample um, sources of uh, 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 briefing papers and um, other uh, content that we produce, which are all available on our website and the publication section uh, that uh, we, we have. Um, I just want to flag um, a briefing paper that uh, is framing some of this conversation today uh, that was uh, released at the beginning of the year, five areas where business can encourage inclusive growth. Uh, we'll display some of the um, the, the outcome of that briefing paper uh, later on. Uh, and uh, that's uh, uh, the five areas where we focus our strategy uh, and investing activities. As you can see, uh, these are basically the five levels uh, on which we focus our work uh, today. Um, and uh, our advisory and investment solutions enable basically to support the definition of strategy and action plan. Um, and to uh, build financial and digital coalitions, maximizing resources, addressing um, uh, multiple aspects of what an inclusive growth agenda can imply, typically working and addressing the recent working condition issues um, and respect of human rights to the value chain, among other things we do. Let's move on to the core of the topic, and I will uh, just take um, a few minutes to introduce to the topic briefly, and then, of course, and make the most of the presence of our, uh, our panelists today uh, who will contribute and share uh, a, a perspective uh, which will be very diverse and part of my job will be today to ensure that uh, we can connect the dot across that wealth of knowledge that is uh, taking part in this uh, discussion today. Uh, very briefly, when we talk about uh, the, what, what makes that uh, COVID-19 sanitary crisis and the related economic recession, different or similar to what we've seen in the past. We just wanted to frame that conversation with a few words and, of course, then explore with our panelists some of the uh, sample solutions that are available and which uh, uh, any uh, company or investor can activate. Um, what is, uh, we just wanted to share uh, with um, our, uh, many of uh, the people who have contributed to the development of those contents a few elements. Uh, what is similar with the crisis that is underway is just a few things. For example, the scale. Uh, at the end of the day, may every major uh, crisis uh, it operates at a scale which um, can be similar. And uh, we've seen a drop in uh, greenhouse gases emission relative to recent lockdown across the globe, which to some extent has been similar to what we've seen in previous financial crisis, uh, where uh, the subprime crisis generated also its <laughs> drop of GHG emissions. So in that sense, the scale is, is similar. Uh, crisis, as always, accelerate transformations. Today, we see an acceleration typically that is happening on digital uh, transformations, but in the past, every industrial revolution has been closely attached to uh, major global recessions. 
And last but not least, and very pertinent to our agenda today, um, these crises accelerate and amplify inequalities at a level which is just building on the level of inequalities which had been skyrocketing for decades, uh, but the craze amplifies um, even more uh, that trend. However, there are three things that might be uh, flagged being particularly uh, different with this crisis and making an inclusive growth agenda even more pertinent um, for the, the discussion that we can have. First, this crisis challenges the benefits of globalization. Uh, just from the perspective of supply and continuity, it is clear that a lot of decision makers, business decision makers, are increasingly wondering to which extent they should not relocate some of the sourcing of their activities. Um, this is pretty new in the sense that a lot of the uh, decision makers would generally embrace uh, globalization. So that's different. The second aspect of the sanitary crisis and the way that the recession that is related to it is that solutions provided and policies provided by governments to date have been challenged but are increasingly more challenged um, again by the same community of investors and business leaders because uh, they've realized typically if you look at the uh, investments which have been made in health uh, policy and healthcare systems, just to take um, an example, just not proven to to be able to address a sanitary crisis, uh, which could have been not that major um, with different investment uh, that could have been made uh, up to now. Um, so governments are uh, seriously challenged with this crisis, which is building on uh, a lot of the, the, the frustration which have been expressed for uh, the past decade, uh, which make the question of how we build more inclusive model even more even more important. And last aspect that uh, we wanted to to share so as part of the introduction of this uh, webinar today is that uh, decision makers we we work with have to face um, a very very challenging moment when. On the one hand, they need to really think about long-term uh, impact and vision, um, meaning that they really need to understand what will make uh, their business model resilient on the long term and able to create value and maintain competitiveness. And at the same time, the crisis and the way it generates a level of uncertainty that is extremely high, which encourages uh, to push uh, the concept of agility to its maximum. So you have this conflicting concept of long-term vision that needs to combine with very, very, very short-minded agility, uh, which of course is fundamentally conflictual in essence. Um, and so some of the solutions to address those uh, from uh, the perspective of uh, business and uh, investor decision makers is increasingly to really think in terms of purpose at the end of the day, when you work with employees who collaborators or business partners, you in the telework model, purpose is even more meaningful and important because that's basically what might cement a community that becomes increasingly more virtual. The concept of resilience is important uh, as well in the sense that that's a way for decision makers to really think about how to navigate the turbulences. Today we're talking about sanitary crisis. Uh, we know that the recession is extremely violent and has uh, it creates a very explosive social context across the globe. 
uh, and on top of that, we know that the environmental crisis continued to increase in magnitude, meaning that um, uh, uh, the capacity to build a resilience able to navigate um, these combination of sanitary, social, and environmental crisis is, is extremely high and extremely important. In response, there is no solution for any company, uh, any investor to think resilience without capacity to think about inclusiveness. Why? Simply because you cannot create an and generate value on your own. You're part of an ecosystem. And because you're part of an ecosystem, uh, you need to understand how to better share values. If you want to relocate uh, sourcing activities, you need to understand how to make the most and invest in local uh, education, local capacities, local infrastructures. Long story short, uh, being more inclusive in the way you think uh, business and value creation is even more important in response to the crisis. Last opening remark, uh, which uh, we wanted to bring to your attention, is coming with this concept of um, controversies uh, and the response to date that we've seen across the past six months, which to some extent is interesting and provides a lot of reasons um, to believe in, to feel that there are reasons to be optimistic because uh, innovation and solutions come to crisis, but at the same time, uh, there are reasons to be also very concerned, very concerned because the social explosive context and the poor geop global geopolitical context increases uncertainties um, in which uh, uh, decision business and, 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 and financial decision makers need to make decisions. And we believe that in response, uh, more, and that's um, a belief which we're sharing with our community. We believe that more human rights, more inclusiveness is part of the solution rather than less. And when we look across the controversies which you can see uh, outlined in the screen as we speak, um, typically that there are uh, some of the companies or buyers uh, uh, basically who consult orders um, and which can affect millions of workers, that basically destroys trust. And how do you want to recover from a crisis if you destroy trust with your uh, close, uh, close ecosystem and close partners? It's not working. Um, so more human rights, more inclusive growth is needed, and that's really part of the solution. At a time when, because the crisis costs money, at a time where there are less taxes um, pouring funds of governments, uh, an easy position would be to instead uh, call for less regulation, less, uh, less taxes. Um, and we believe that this is likely to increase issues and problems. Um, so in conclusion, another summary that will frame uh, the way we will move to the next part of our discussion uh, with our panelists in a minute. Uh, there are three uh, closing points uh, that we, we wanted to share today, and they will frame the conversation uh, going forward. First, uh, it is important to find a good way to strike the balance between what's needed to protect uh, existing assets on the one hand, um, and at the same time, uh, learn from experience and build or rebuild trust. We've worked with uh, several companies in multiple environments recently, and we've seen across the recent crisis, for example, that whenever we had a positive, good, constructive dialogue 
uh, an engagement between companies and employees, uh, companies and stakeholders, or even between investors and companies, that was fruitful and a good foundation to navigate the crisis positively. When instead, we had to face very conflictual situations prior uh, to the sanitary crisis, well, uh, navigating the crisis had proven to be even more complicated. So every company has to learn from that and try to find the right balance between maintaining positions and preserving assets. And um, we'll talk about what the right level, for example, to maneuver between um, layoffs and other solutions ensuring that uh, um, short-term solutions to reduce costs can be uh, put in place uh, to respond to the, um, the violence of the crisis on the one end and at the same time or to secure loyalty and commitment of stakeholders, employees, and business partners, and ecosystem operating in the environment, so the regions, the territories where companies have, have, have activities. The second uh, closing remark uh, connecting to the panel discussion is how companies can identify levels of growth. Uh, here, it's all about learning from the crisis. As we said, every crisis is an opportunity to accelerate transformations. We see big trends happening in terms of digital, environmental, and social transformations underway anyway, and how companies can re-identify the right levels which can be adapted to uh, their portfolio if we're talking to investors and their assets, or to companies if we're talking about their assets as uh, owners of uh, industrial assets, for example. Um, a short and easy response um, is clearly to invest in people and infrastructural systems. People, um, and typically that can be about education and capacity building and ensuring that people can adapt to digital transformations and the way systems that can be about uh, investing massively in the digital infrastructure of a company, or that could be about engaging very closely with the territories and the relevant authorities um, operating uh, in the surrounding areas of assets to really understand how best to maximize taxes that can be generated in local areas to maximize investment, building or rebuilding infrastructures uh, that brings positive externalities for business and uh, financial portfolios to create more value. Last point, uh, prepare inclusive goals. Um, that's a point where it's important to think, and we are, that's part of our DNA, so it's pretty easy for us to talk about that, to think about uh, innovative solutions, ensuring that companies can manage uh, the complexity um, that in the scale uh, of transformation that they need to face. And that, of course, addressing global issues. And uh, we believe that among many uh, levers, um, the questions of maximizing liquidity is available today, serving uh, purposes of uh, circularity, climate and energy transitions, education and other inclusive growth levels that have been displayed in the screen uh, a little bit earlier are very, very uh, important and, um, and promising on the one end. We also believe that uh, the digital revolution and the way it generates an unprecedented level of solutions, innovative solutions to manage um, complexity at a scale that we've not been able to manage before. We work on those areas, so uh, we remain uh, uh, interested to keep that conversation going um, with uh, anyone. Let's move on. Um, 
and get the contribution of the perspective of our um, panelists. So first, I will uh, suggest that our panelists can uh, briefly um, introduce themselves. So all of you can uh, understand who are, are you taking part in the conversation today. Susan, tell us a little bit more about who you are, and then I will ask you a few questions. Uh, thanks, Fareed. Um, my name is Susan Winterberg. Um, I am uh, a fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School uh, Belfer Center Science for International Affairs in the Technology and Public Purpose Project. Um, my most recent work I've been doing with them is in the area of managing um, responsible transitions to frontier technologies, particularly technologies like artificial intelligence and frontier life sciences. Um, and my Current research is coming out, a little bit of a related topic. I was looking at the venture capital industry and how they manage new um, technologies that are, are coming out and what does that mean as a responsible investor if you're either a venture capitalist or an institutional investor as acting as a limited partner in those funds. Uh, more related to the topic today though, before I was in this fellowship role, I was uh, at BSR working with Fareed um, and I led our inclusive economy team um, of we were a team of experts um, all over the world working on topics of anything related to inclusive growth. So that was good jobs, diversity and inclusion, uh, product affordability and access strategies, bottom of the pyramid markets, um, and developing strategies for how to work with uh, governments and um, communities uh, in ways that would be inclusive for companies. Um, so yeah, I have a sort of a joint background that sort of spans between academic research and practical sort of business management consulting. Uh, so I'm happy to be here today and be able to share some perspectives with you. Thank you very much. Quick question I can see. Uh, can you tell, tell a bit more about your, your background in research, what you've been doing recently, I can see. Oh, at the, the Belfer Center Research, yep. Uh, so I have a paper coming out next week that's the culmination of that two years of work uh, that's going to be a roadmap for the venture capital industry. Um, and limited partners on what they can do to improve um, ESG performance in, in that asset class. So I'll be happy to share that with Fareed uh, when it's out next week and who can share it all with, with all of you. Thank you very much. Romina Boring, please introduce yourself as well. Yeah, sure. Um, good morning. To everybody. Uh, so my name is Rina Borini. I'm the acting director of a newly uh, established center at UECD. It's called WISE, which stands for Wellbeing, Inclusion, uh, Sustainability, and Equal Opportunity. And this is a center uh, that, in fact, was launched a couple of months ago and is going to be in charge of all the work that UECD is going to do on issues that relate to well-being, inclusion, of course. Uh, so it's very much building on, um, I would say, you know, the last decade of work on uh, impact and going beyond uh, GDP, so, you know, non-financial sort of outcomes, um, but also obviously on the work that we did on inequalities and inclusive growth. And, uh, well, of course, I'm very excited to be in the call. Uh, I should thank uh, Farid for uh, the invitation, uh, but I also want to say that uh, um, uh, we, uh, where the Susan and itself are sort of partners in crime because Susan and Fred were quite instrumental, in fact, in, um, in, in one of the initiatives that we're going to discuss with you this afternoon is called Business for Inclusive Growth, which is uh, a coalition of 
major multinationals that have uh, you know, joined efforts and, and forces to, to fight against inequalities. And with Farid and Susan, we work a lot together, uh, in fact, to, to get this uh, project on the ground. Okay, excellent. Ziga, I think if you want to introduce yourself, you need to unmute uh, yourself. Ziga, thank please. you very much for it. I have just uh, done that, uh, hopefully successfully. Uh, thank yes. you very much for inviting me to the call. Um, so maybe just a small correction on my title, as I see it appearing in the screen. I used to be the special advisor to the environment director in the OECD about four or five years ago for the period of four years. Uh, it's been my great pleasure to work in that team. But since then, I have worked as an inclusive growth advisor reporting to the Secretary General, uh, where I was in charge of the inclusive growth framework and indicators uh, for policy action. And now I'm actually leading a team under the Vice Center, uh, whose director is uh, Romina Buarini, and I will be in charge of the country reviews on inclusive growth, of the business for inclusive growth, and as well with the links to the SDGs. So thank you very much. Uh, it's my pleasure to be on the call. Thank you, and I will be um, corrected before the presentation is uploaded and shared. Um, all right, so let's move on and uh, get the perspective of Suzanne then um, as a starting point, um, uh, sharing considerations on uh, recession, who survives, who thrives, and tell me when uh, you want me to move to the following slide. Okay, thanks, Fareed. Yeah, so following up to some of the introductory comments Fareed gave about what matters um, in terms of managing companies during recessions, I thought it'd be helpful if we just start and look at what the business case is for certain choices that are made uh, during recessions, and then I'm going to um, sort of pivot over and talk a little bit more of what does that mean for social impact and societal outcomes uh, for for uh, the implications of these choices. Um, and I'm going to be looking back historically uh, in my remarks, so I'm going to be looking at the 2008-2009 Great Recession um, and also some of the earlier recessions like the dot-com bust in 2001. Uh, but we've, I think what's what we know about this research is that the results are holding consistent every time we've repeated these studies over the last three decades. Uh, so hopefully it will be relevant for COVID recession, but obviously it's going to be a few years before we have enough financial data to really definitively say what was the right strategy for this recession. So perhaps just keep that in mind. Uh, so basically what the research says about recessions is that the decisions you make both before the recession and during the recession have very strong correlations to what your out, your financial outcomes are as a company afterwards. Um, and for anyone on the call who comes from finance, a lot of these messages should look similar because they're very similar to what we know about long-term performance of companies in general. Uh, but there's also a couple strategies in here that might are a little bit more specific to what do you do when there's a downturn. So I'll sort of talk through that. So on the left, this is um, a graph from a report uh, McKenzie put out last year called Bubbles Pop Downturn Stop. Um, you know, there's a link here so you can look at it after the presentation if you really want to dig into the data. But basically what they did is they looked back during the Great Recession and tried to understand which companies uh, were more resilient after the recession. So regardless of how they were performing, you know, in the pack inside their, their industry before, who really was resilient and sort of took off afterwards. Um, and that's uh, the blue line on the top, the top 20 percent of companies uh, in terms of their performance. And then at the bottom, they have the non-resilient, which are the bottom 
uh, the, the other 80% 80, 80 of the companies. Um, and then what the studies have done is they really go across and just try to classify, like, what are some of the strategies that these companies use that uh, correlate back to whether you're a resilient or a non-resilient company. Um, so the first one is what do you, a lot of it has to do with what you do before the downturn happens. So it's sort of in that one to two year period before uh, these companies sort of, they scenario plan and they have a recession playbook. Um, and in these playbooks can be different things like what do we do if there's a downturn of demand or, or new orders of like 10% versus 25 versus 50%. Um, and they have a set of actions in place. Um, and then they sort of socialize that across their organizations. So making sure that your employees know that, you know, at what level would we start layoffs? Like a 10% decline would not result in a layoff, for example, or, you know, are we going to cut travel and travel budgets or we go sort of what you're doing so that when the actual downturn hits, it's sort of been socialized both with employees or maybe even like your key suppliers so that they know what to expect and it doesn't kind of send everybody into this tailspin of just uncertainty or that you're not just scrambling around figuring out what to do as, you know, things are falling apart as, you know, we saw happen very quickly in February and March this year. Um, the second thing they do is they deleverage in the year or two before. Uh, this is just so that they have more cash on hand to do things, uh, both to tie over, you know, any sort of cash uh, cash flow shortfalls or, uh, interestingly, you know, to engage in M&A. So the famous example of the research sites is uh, Amazon uh, during the 2000-2001 recession, uh, where about, I think about half of the digital tech companies all went out of business, but they had sort of deleveraged quite a bit so then they were able to more actively invest in R&D and in strategic M&A during that period and really sort of come out of that pack ahead. So there's some good examples in the papers um, of, of sort of how, how these two strategies can play together to help. Uh, the other is they decentralize decision making because you have to be able to uh, be very agile during this period. Um, so centralization benefits companies sort of during growth periods but being more decentralized so that you can quickly pivot for each geographic market, each customer segment, adjust your prices, adjust your terms, whatever you need to do to sort of keep your sales moving forward uh, through these sharp down these sharp downturns. So sometimes they already have that in place. Sometimes it's part of the playbook, and then we go back to business as usual, back in the growth phase. Um, and then the other two uh, reduce costs. So um, historically strong uh, focus on operating efficiency. So if you weren't doing it already, you absolutely need to be focusing on that during a downturn. Um, reduce labor costs for most companies. That is one of their biggest expenses, uh, but all, what the key caveat there is layoffs are a last resort. So they're using things like short-term work schemes, they're using furloughs, um, retirement match benefit cuts, like all kinds of other things. Um, and then they invest for the future. So that's increase in R&D, disciplined M&A, um, and importantly, uh, investing in technology solutions, two kinds, process automation, so streamlining anything, that needs to be streamlined or automated and then having data analytics so that you can become more agile. So, right. So a lot of these strategies are things we just know in general produces uh, good, uh, good financial returns over the long term. And then kind of the tricky one for recessions is probably reduced costs. And that's where we can have uh, a little bit of sort of a social impact challenge that I want to dig into a little bit more. Um, next slide, please. Yeah, so for layoffs in particular, there's uh, quite a bit of research on this one. I think uh, in the slide for Reed showed, I think he showed you that graph where you just kind of saw historically what happened from the 1970s to 2008, 2009, where companies in the past would just take a productivity hit during a recession, but they would try to retain their workforce 
but over time, I think it's gone something like 90, it started like maybe 70 to 24. Uh, now we're down to something like 99 to one, you know, they just would lay off their employees rather than take a short term productivity hit over that, you know, 12 to 18 month recession period. Uh, so the, a lot of the research kind of dug into like, well, does this pay off for the businesses? And what we find in the research is, well, no, it doesn't um, for a variety of reasons. So the first one is that when you lay off your employees, you're basically causing uh, almost like a, a human capital crisis inside of your company. Um, and a lot of this has to do with how people react to the uncertainty of layoffs. So uh, there's less teamwork, more political behavior, top talent tends to leave, employee engagement scores go down. And sort of when you start to have uh, this kind of anxiety inside your organization, it, it can spill over across lots of different domains. So when you look inside companies that are conducting layoffs, uh, their sales can go down because you have less time with your customers or your account managers get laid off. So the, that relationship is then severed sometimes with that customer. Um, R&D, so people are less innovative. There's fewer patents being filed during, um, during layoff periods. You're losing your top talent sometimes uh, that, and they're taking all that knowledge with them or you can get delays on your product delivery. Safety quality, more accidents, more kind of safety violations and cost of rework and scrap. Um, more product recalls, um, and then brand brand reputation, legal, political, law, more lawsuits, more strikes and work disruptions, uh, boycotts, and then sort of sometimes politicians can kind of get get involved in this as well, uh, where you know they they sort of run almost like anti like public relations campaigns against companies that are, they perceive are not conducting layoffs properly. So it really it needs to be sort of the last resort um, once you've sort of looked at other sort of cost cutting centers. Uh, as part of as part of the downturn, just for avoiding these sort of hidden internal costs that can really sort of derail the company coming out of this. When you just don't have the talent and you don't have your customer relationships or your supplier relationships lined up so you can very quickly respond once demand starts picking up again. Um, next slide. Quick clarification uh, from yeah. a participant from the aircraft industry. Um, it's about whether there is a, a way to, to give this a value somehow, uh, because you strike an interesting balance um, mm -hmm. between you know, short-term uh, cost reduction and longer-term uh, impact on revenue generation. And are you aware of models um, that you know, can give that, those to some numbers? Uh, looking for numbers on, on, on the layoffs or on the other, on the other slide, the Um, I, I'm not, I, I, in terms of, of, of models, um, there, may be, there, there may be some of the financial models in the papers uh, that sort of dig into like what they found were like the exact accounting metrics that they were measuring in terms of like things like the leverage ratio of, of the companies. Um, so I think like there's, they, they, there are, these were quantitative studies, so they did break out uh, what, what some of those breakdowns were. Okay. Is that was that was that the question? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, okay. Um, yeah, and so also continuing on the layoffs uh, issue, one of the other challenges is that um, this is also the area where you're going to have the most social impact as a company. Uh, and there's sort of three sort of areas that you start to have impacts when you do layoffs. There's sort of two direct impacts, uh, which are to the workers that lose their jobs in this process, and then there's sort of a collective impact to communities and entire countries and the world economy when when this is happening at scale like it's doing during a major 
uh, recession or crisis that's global. Um, so the first one is income and wealth. So we know there's a lot of things that happen to people um, who become unemployed. So one of the first things we know is that they face stigma on the job market. So there's been a number of studies since the Great Recession that like went back and looked at, you know, how long does it take for someone to get a job call back, depending how many months they've been away from their current job. Um, and then they'll send out resumes and things with all they alter. These are sort of made up resumes. But the only thing they alter is whether the person's currently employed or whether they're unemployed and how many months. And they find like it's almost sort of a vertical drop off after two months that, you know, by, by month nine, I think you don't get any callbacks anymore from recruiters if the resume um, says that you are unemployed. Uh, so this can be sort of over time, particularly in these long recessions where it just takes more time to get back into reemployment. It pushes a subset of people into these um, long-term unemployment cycles where they just can't ever get out of them again. Um, and then reemployment at lower wages. So a lot of times when people are losing jobs, particularly older workers or people with more seniority, they're being reemployed at lower wages. So past recessions, I think the Great Recession, I think it was around 17%, some of the more concentrated ones in the past. Um, like the, uh, the most, I think the, the steepest one was the auto industry, like during the 1980s and 1990s when they were doing the offshoring, some people's uh, wages fell 50 to 70%. A lot of them were going from, you know, stable jobs, full-time jobs with benefits and auto companies and being reemployed in, um, temporary work. Uh, so there can be very strong sort of downward social mobility, uh, when you are laid off, if you're not able to A, find a job quickly, B, find a job in the same field that you left where you have the skills and seniority. Um, some additional things that can happen um, in the United States, for example, 70% of people are living paycheck to paycheck, which means they don't have any savings. Uh, so they can't go very long uh, without their paycheck before they start running into serious financial problems. Um, so, for example, that could be, you know, just raising credit card debt, um, risk of home foreclosure, eviction. Um, and bankruptcies um, and disproportionately low income and people of color are as a group are more vulnerable to this uh, just because they tend to be in the lower wage jobs where you're less likely to have any savings or social net. But we see it all across the income spectrum, that 70 percent number that includes um, all all income levels. Um, and then for health. So studies that sort of look at long term unemployment. Uh, are saying, well, what, what happens to people if they're unemployed over, you know, certain period of time? So this is a meta study. It was pulling together hundreds of studies that have been done all over the world um, on this. Uh, so your risk, in, your risk increased chance of getting a physical illness, typically like heart attacks or something stress related is about 1.8x would it be as it would be for someone who's currently employed. Developing drug and alcohol addiction around two to four times increase. And this includes the opioid epidemic. Um, depression, developing depression or committing suicide is about two times higher. Um, and then interestingly, violent behavior increases six times among people who are unemployed long term. Sick abuse, but it also includes things like property crime um, and also looking internationally, things like joining terrorist organizations and different um, kind of more political crime. Uh, but most of, most of like what, what that 6X is, is more sort of domestic abuse, mostly uh, child abuse. Um, and then sort of what's the collective impact um, of, of, I of, to of move to, um, I need to make sure that other panelists can have time, Suzanne. Yeah, sure. And the last one. Um, so what's, what's the uh, collective impact? Um, so when, when this happens too quickly all in one place, you lose tax revenues, property values decline, you don't, you're not able to fund schools, police, and then 
social and political unrest. So I think in the COVID world today, we're seeing, we're starting to see this popping up in different places. So historically, this is what happened. And during Q&A, happy to talk more about some of this research or what, what's going on today. Thank you so much. And I'll um, just share a question, which might be an entry point for uh, Romina. Um, and as before I do this, I want to make sure that um, I display them uh, sources um, for those asking questions about models and others uh, to make sure that they can um, uh, uh, have access to the, um, uh, those uh, complementary uh, sources of information. Um, getting back to my slides here, um, we, so Romina, just a transition question um, in a way. A, someone is asking, to which extent is that a responsibility uh, what's the business case for companies to care about those um, so society impact uh, presented by, by Suzanne and to which extent uh, companies and probably those uh, uh, interested in a coalition like Business for Inclusive Growth, but given uh, your role with WISE Center, uh, you might also have um, that perspective. Uh, if someone, a decision maker, wants to make a, a case uh, to invest and avoid a negative um, impact to societies like those. Uh, thanks for, for uh, I think this is a great question and thanks for uh, to Susan for sharing um, you know those very interesting results I would say many of them connect to, to uh, ongoing uh, research at the OECD on how we are kind of appreciating understanding and evaluating the, the social sort of inputs and the social costs of the crisis but I think that the, the the short answer to to this question uh, you know what is so wh where does sort of the responsibility of the different actors lies uh, the way we are, I think, looking at this question at the OECD is that we think this is really, uh, you know, this falls under the sort of relief of both sort of the private and the public sector. Uh, we're talking uh, uh, of sort of the, the biggest uh, crisis, actually, um, I mean, definitely since the Second World War. Uh, you know, when we released our sort of the latest economic focus, uh, we had to sort of downgrade the focus even more uh, than we, you know, uh, did um, calculate what we had calculated in, in June. Uh, and and the cost of the crisis in terms of changing sort of people's uh, lives and sort of livelihoods, especially for the most uh, vulnerable, is also huge. So because uh, I think the scale of the challenge is unprecedented, and uh, as in fact both you and and Susan have noticed, uh, the challenge. I mean, the, the crisis, uh, if anything, uh, sort of compounds and exposes and reinforces some of the other challenges, not just the social ones, but also the, uh, you know, the, the bigger transformations that the economists and societies were already sort of going through, uh, namely climate change, namely sort of the digital transformation. So the crisis is not just happening, you know, in a vacuum. It's actually happening in a context that I would say uh, was already quite heavy uh, but and so definitely you know uh, there is there is something that is not just a job for for policymakers or or for businesses but it's really i mean for both of them and for many other actors i mean civil so society and many other sort of organizations and citizens i mean i think definitely we, we, we can think that uh, th this is something that will require you know solutions that that are you know design and sort of implemented by a number of actors, but a uh, very concrete situation today and how sort of diff different, let's say, from the great sort of 
recessions or how they create recessions. That would be no longer really on the table. I mean, the, the economic and, and social costs, all this debate, for instance, around, you know, what is the, uh, the, the input on, on, the, on, uh, on the growth potential of the economies, on the productivity potential. Obviously, every time that a sort of economic crisis is hitting, this is really hampering, uh, you know, the growth potential. And so, you know, the chances that countries uh, and economies grow tomorrow. Uh, but um, the, the perhaps the, what is very distinctive about this crisis, again, is this connection with, with the social dimensions of it. And, and of course, every time that uh, a person you know, loses his or her job, job this, is, you know, this is generating obviously a negative uh, you know, input of, on his or her life. And so it, it, that, that, that is not just an economic uh, you know, uh, effect. It's it's definitely a well-being effect. That's the way we we frame it at the OECD. And in fact, we have done past in the past research that was showing that that uh, again the sort of the, the the inputs in terms of people's life, how the lives of people is changed, go well beyond so just you know losing some uh, some money. Uh, and in fact, there is a very interesting um, story to be told around, uh, you know, also the so dynamic inputs, if you wish, meaning that when you are losing you know, your, your job, this also, in fact, affects the chances that your own children, uh, you know, will, will definitely not get the same opportunities to, to, to get good education and good job tomorrow. So, you know, this is also something that actually explains why inequalities sort of perpetuate sort of over time and, and child poverty, you know, uh, increased quite quite largely in the previous crisis, and this is definitely something that that uh, that will be uh, a concern this time as well. But what is new, I think, uh, it's not just the fact that inequalities today are larger than one what you know what they were in in at the end of 2010. Um, and um, and we know, you know, that to some extent, uh, social mobility is also actually lower than what it used to be. And so, you know, there is this this notion of, of uh, again, uh, social mobility so is definitely an opportunity for people sort of to to better to sort of actually uh, be worse today than it used to be in 2010. Uh, but I think what what is also very very um, you know uh, big difference is is the fact, for instance, that. Uh, are looking at um, obviously health inputs that, that we didn't have in the previous uh, crisis and those health inputs you know go well beyond sort of the, the uh, I would say the physical health impacts obviously the the, the, the loss of, of, of um, you know of lives I mean that's the first uh, obviously consequence of COVID but what we are seeing in our economies in the OECD is that in fact um, the uh, the health inputs just on the physical health again uh, go well beyond COVID because there are many delays in treatment, uh, but also mental health, uh, you know, uh, is coming up actually with, with significant uh, health risks. So if you look at psychological distress, this has increased in many of the OECD countries. Uh, just to give you some sense, in the UK, you know, it went from 80% to 28%. Uh, in France, you know, more than one third of, of the population actually says that is, the, I mean, says that they, they, oh, they are reporting symptoms of, of distress. And then this, uh, the, the, the input on safety and security, which is also something that, that uh, Susan was alluding to in terms of, you know, uh, higher domestic violence. Uh, so these are all things that I don't think we were seeing. I mean, definitely we don't, we, we have numbers that suggest that, uh, you know, those uh, well-being impacts again going beyond sort of the immediate, immediate uh, economic and, and social effects of the crisis. Uh, these are not, uh, I, I think, of the magnitude that, that we saw in, in 2009. Uh, 
Um, so um, I wanted perhaps to, to uh, add to that uh, the fact that um, what we're doing at the OECD and particularly in the white center is try to uh, portray this and, and bring it together like in a way that it allows us to understand, you know, how do you balance, you know, those effects. And I think somebody put the question, you know, how do you evaluate uh, or, you know, where do you strike a balance if you know that, that some of the interventions that are required to mitigate some of the, the, the inputs of the crisis, you know, they come with a cost today, but they may have some more benefits tomorrow. So how do you actually do that? I mean, write that equation, how do you understand where you have to uh, you know, what, what is the right sort of intervention in a way that, that um, sort of keeps you going today, but at the same time sort of uh, builds in resilience actually for, for what uh, you are getting tomorrow. And, uh, and so we, we did some work, um, in fact, that was done in the context of the Great Recession. Uh, so we haven't updated yet. I mean, we, have, we haven't applied the same methodology to, to the current crisis. We'll do uh, I guess in the few months, in the few sort of coming months, but uh, I'm happy to share references. But just to say that this work uh, that was essentially putting a sort of a shadow crisis, let's say, on uh, on unemployment and uh, and years of longevity uh, sort of lost with a crisis. The, so th that that will show essentially that um, if you just take essentially the the GDP uh, inputs of a crisis, you are underestimating very much the social cost of a crisis. Uh, just to give you an illustration of that, uh, between 2008 and 2013, so during the Great Recession, GDP per capita stagnated across OECD. Um, essentially, uh, you know, dropped by by something like uh, uh, 2.5, uh, 2 sort of, again, on average, so taking all, all OECD uh, countries together. But if you look actually at the living standards of the poor households, so those living standards incorporate as well the non-monetary uh, inputs of the crisis in terms of longevity, or let's say uh, reduced life expectancy, and a higher um, dissatisfaction from the fact that you are unemployed, so lower um, life satisfaction and, and, and well-being, subjective well-being of people because of your unemployment status. So those standards of the poor households actually by uh, annually. Uh, so that gives you a sense, you know, of, of, of why it is so important actually to, to, to measure the inputs in, in the right uh, way. Uh, let me now move to the question of, um, uh, in a way, so the, what is the, what, what, why the OECD and how the OECD is working on on um, the private sector contribution to, uh, uh, well, to, to the inclusive growth agenda. And as I said, in fact, the, the, the whole inclusive growth agenda was started at the OECD, in fact, just after the Great Recession. But this is something that we work on now for the last 10 years. And this is an agenda that we, in fact, have pushed with uh, our countries, but also with the businesses we've been working with, uh, just because we, we see that there is a strong case for inclusive growth, not just again in a crisis. It's not just you know something that, that changes the economic cycle. This is something really that is about you know the structural transformation and the more sort of long-term transformation again that all economic structures and organizations have, have, have to undergo. And so uh, in that um, in that uh, work, what we did very much uh, put the emphasis on is when we look at what businesses are doing. Uh, first of all, of course, the complementarity of their action with what governments are doing. Uh, 
so we did, and Jigo will tell you, uh, you know, a bit more about it. We did some work uh, to come up with a framework for policy action, so on inclusive growth, what governments should be putting in place, you know, to, to foster inclusive growth. But then what we had to that was essentially trying to understand the business levers. Uh, so how, again, the, the policies can be, or the actions of the, of the uh, private sector can be complementing those of, of, of the governments and, and very often, you know, how the governments, you know, can provide incentives to the private sector, which to some extent, uh, you know, to, 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 to act inclusively, which to some extent goes back to this question that somebody put about, you know, what is the sort of, you know, where is the responsibility and, you know, uh, how do we know, you know, that, that, uh, that there is a role, you know, for the, for the two sectors, but also, you know, that, that again, that there is also some coordination in, in, uh, in what is being done. Uh, so we look into that, um, and um, for instance, I, I think in terms of what is coming out from our sort of latest research on this issue, uh, is that uh, it's quite important that businesses and and comp and and, um, and the governments work together. For instance, on all that is related to non-financial reporting, so to trying to understand, uh, well. The way businesses sort of measure impact uh, in some OECD countries, you have governments regulating on the matter. Uh, but uh, you know, first of all, at UEC, we are trying to push for convergence into that, so that there is not just you know one uh, approach, let's say in one country or one region of the world, but really we are uh, coming up with, on this question of on impact measurement uh, in a global kind of you know standardized manner. Um, and then uh, the other uh, perhaps uh, interesting uh, work we've done in looking at new forms of uh, social protections, for instance, and there again, uh, you know, how social protection can be revisited also in the light of the pandemic. Uh, of course, it's not just about social protection. A lot of our emphasis, I think, in encouraging governments to act towards inclusive growth is in looking at things such as uh, upskilling, uh, reskilling. So typically, for instance, in what we are suggesting to governments to do now, we're putting quite a lot sort of the focus on saying this is about obviously building potential for people. You know, if they are losing uh, the job, they have to you know make sure that their capacity to to reintegrate the labor market or 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 you know to be retrained stays high. And so this is. I wouldn't think this is very new. I mean, we've been saying this and the OECD has been saying that, but what is new is that we are uh, effectively uh, working with some of the companies of B4IG to try to imagine new forms of retraining, new forms of uh, you know, reskilling and upskilling programs that again are uh, co-designed by governments and, and the companies are, and are also operated by, by you know, those two sectors together. And so this this is quite new, I would say. This is not something that we had done, you know, typically during the Great Recession. I think where where probably the roles of, of the private and the, and the sort of public sectors were not necessarily uh, sort of brought together consistently. So now we are very concretely through business for inclusive growth, really trying to understand, you know, what we're talking about those those uh, you know big uh, programs that uh, that uh, that pertain to retraining people. What are these very specific needs that some, uh, you know, uh, uh, labor markets have and very, very locally, very often we're looking at very specific cities or, or regions. And so how the businesses and, uh, you know, the, the, the local governments can work together to put in place, you know, training programs that, that are effective. Um, we need... Yes. We need to keep some time for Ziga as well. So Absolutely. Let me okay. Uh, then in this case, I, I think I actually said what uh, I mean. The main, the main, the really what I wanted to to emphasize most, and please, Ziga, uh, yeah. take take the floor to provide yeah. more details. Thanks. 
Yep, that's very uh, welcome. And um, uh, we have um, need to stick to a certain format. So, Ziga, maybe um, uh, in just a very few and limited words, uh, how would you share uh, a way forward and concrete um, uh, way forward for companies interested in um, in committing or engaging, for example, to uh, before ID or, or other initiatives you might find relevant given the conversation we're having as we speak. And as we yes. say that, there is a poll that is underway for those who want to contribute. Yes, thank you very much for it. And so I think the time is nearly up. So let me perhaps just mention two key websites and then we can also follow up and I can explain very briefly what they contain. So one is, that I would really like to strike the point that both governments and businesses are making outstanding efforts. And on the OECD COVID website, we have actually um, developed an artificial intelligence tool to really develop a real-time data tracker of what's going on on the statistical side, but also in terms of all types of policies that countries are considering, including to support directly businesses to strengthen the resilience and to actually uh, improve their prospects for the future. That's one thing. The second one is the OECD Inclusive Growth website that contains the link to the Business for Inclusive Growth uh, press release on the actions that the companies are concretely doing with response to the COVID crisis. And that, what I would like to emphasize there is actually that it's really important that any immediate responses have a very strong strategic component in mind. Concretely, what does this mean? It means that it is very well aligned with the pledge on combating uh, all sorts of inequalities that have been highlighted in Biarritz pledge from last year, we end at the same time responding to the crisis. So that means not to, um, you know, succumb just to some areas that they think that immediate responses would be needed now and forget about, for example, advancing human rights with respect to fighting child labor or to build inclusive workplaces or to strengthen the inclusive supply chains. So very briefly, what companies are doing is on the side of, for example, supporting inclusive business ecosystems and value chains, they're really providing essential financial assistance, loans, liquidity to vulnerable businesses. They really recognize what is important is that they maintain a healthy client base. They maintain a healthy supply chain of their contacts, of their suppliers. That's one thing that is really important. The second thing that is very important is they have to support their own workplaces. So they need to foremost provide safe environments for the workforce, but beyond that, they also have to support employees' earnings and jobs. They need to maintain the quality of jobs, facilitate the transition of the types of jobs that we are seeing with uh, digitalization taking place more rapidly than have been foreseen before the crisis. And with respect to that, they're thinking ahead how to build and strengthen the resilience for the future. So I would like to stop here because I see that we are almost out of time, but invite you uh, to also send any comments that you have and have a look at these uh, two websites. And we will be more than happy uh, to engage further with you on any of these aspects. Thank you so much. Thank you. And please share those two website links uh, that uh, will be incorporated in the presentation, which is displayed as we speak. So we make sure that uh, we upload that document that is made available for participants. Um, I will. Thank you very much. 
And uh, thanks so much. Maybe I just want to uh, uh, allow Suzanne to share uh, some uh, a closing remark um, and reaction to what uh, has been presented by Ziga and Romina. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I I agree. I think business and government. Uh, this is a cooperative. Um, situation where it's going to take both to get out of this crisis successfully. Um, the other thing I would sort of highlight about the crisis is that I think we really need to be intentional about the kind of world we want to build on the other side of this. Uh, I think there's a saying in Chinese philosophy says never waste the crisis or uh, and I think this is the perfect opportunity to make sure that we come out into a world that's fairer, more sustainable and more environmentally friendly than the one that we had uh, in 2019. Thank you for those remarks, very important. And you're right, we're getting to the end of the hour. So um, I think LinkedIn is a platform which enables to ensure that uh, you connect directly with uh, interveners if you want uh, through the list of registered participants. Um, we have upcoming webinars as part of that uh, those series of discussions. One scheduled actually next week on human rights risk remediation across the supply chain uh, with contribution from um, uh, the um, uh, Institute for Business and Human Rights, IBHR.org, uh, uh, that is uh, partnering on that event. And uh, later in the, in the month of October, as you can see, we have a discussion talking about stakeholder engagement, which, as you can see, has been framed as a thread across many of the discussions today um, and uh, later in December, another one. Uh, exploring some of those discussions from a different angle because we will uh, put an emphasis on climate action. But at the end of the day, it will be strongly connected because we'll explore um, value chains and innovative uh, financing models um, enabling to accelerate climate action and create jobs at the scale that is needed. And that will be really what uh, we will want to focus on. Um, so these are some of the sources which have been, uh, which enable all of you to dig deeper um, for um, more information. Uh, you can always get in touch um, through uh, all of us, um, through uh, also a couple of elements uh, of uh, 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 social media activities and platforms. Um, I want to close the discussion today thanking uh, very much our panelists uh, for their contribution today. I'm hopeful and I can see there, there are many other questions which we've not been able to address, but that uh, the level of, uh, of satisfaction to the poll, thank you for your contribution to the poll, is very high. And uh, that the uh, number of questions is ex extremely high as well. So the best I can suggest is to share, uh, I will populate some of those questions uh, to maintain the conversation. Um, and uh, hopefully uh, ensure that uh, our panelists have access to those and can interact with all of you directly as well. Thank you very much, everyone, for your time. I will close the session now. Um, and as I like to say with those webinars, I think they're very helpful because it's virtual. Uh, we can all interact and have some insights that we can share. But uh, unfortunately, we cannot uh, continue the conversation over a glass, which will happen uh, one way or another with many of you sooner or later. Thank you very much and have a pleasant day or evening, depending on where you're connecting or uh, watching that uh, webinar today. Thank you very much. Goodbye. Thank you. Thank you.